Well, I want to ask that everybody would turn in their Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter, uh, chapter 20, please. The book of Acts, chapter 20. And uh, I want to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. In our Bibles, if you have uh, a copy of the Bible, you can find the page number uh, in the table of contents. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can uh, use your phone, um, Acts 20, 1 through 16, or we have Bibles in the back as well. Let me read as we get into this. I'm going to read all 16 verses before you. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of uh, uh, the Berean son of Phurus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we uh, stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. But when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while longer until daybreak, and and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Metilan. And, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now we're going to stop there in our reading. This is God's Word to us. Amen? Amen. I want to pray, and I want to ask God to, to help us as we study this. As, as I preach on this passage and on the title, The Darkness of Death Defeated. The Darkness of Death Defeated. So pray with me as we get into God's Word. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this Word. We thank You for 
the, the fact, God, that you speak powerfully through your word. I pray, God, that you would help me as I preach, that I would preach your word and not merely my ideas. That you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes and our minds to understand your word and to see Christ as our treasure who has defeated the darkness of death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On December 2014, a 6,700-page report was released covering the CIA's detention and interrogation program in Afghanistan in the early days of the 2000s. In the report, there was evidence of uh, torture that was used in those early 2000s, particularly at a prison called Cobalt, where 119 people were held in secret CIA detention. According to the study, Cobalt was known as Dark Prison because detainees were kept in pitch black darkness, subjected to intense sensory deprivation. Now, one writer explains on darkness that psychologists tell us that one of the most difficult conditions a person can be forced to bear is light deprivation. Once they can no longer feel in control of their physical surroundings, a person loses a sense of self. Left in the dark, you have no control over your physical surroundings. Every shred of self-confidence shrivels away. The giant within you falls and you become a whimpering prey of the unknown. The natural instinct that one may, might have to be combative is in the dark, paralyzed by fear. I wonder if anyone here knows the dark. Is not the darkness of the soul really the darkness of death itself? Meaning, is not all fear of the dark wrapped up in the fear of death itself? Do you know the darkness of death? The greatest darkness of all is this darkness. The greatest darkness of all, of all is the dark of death itself. In that darkness, we have utter loss of all control. Every sense of self vanishes. The giant that we once were is now defenseless, defenseless exposed, and departed. We're here in Acts chapter 20, and there is actually quite a bit, you might not have felt it just through the reading of it, there's, but there's quite a bit of emotion all wrapped up in this text. A lot of emotion in this text. The, 
the kind of emotion which requires the lows and the highs of something like death to resurrection itself. In verse 12, we are told of the comfort that these people receive when a young boy is brought, brought back to life. In verse 12, it says, they were not a little comforted. That is to say, they were really comforted. They were immensely comforted. I want you to see today in Acts chapter 20 that God has defeated the darkness of death. And we need this text today because we need to be comforted today. Souls need to be comforted in this world. This world is incredibly difficult and incredibly hard because of the decay of death all around us. The dark of death looms over us, not only through death proper, but through all of its aspects of decay. Meaning the darkness of death looms over us in our despair, in our hollow souls, in those places in our soul where we feel that God is absent. The dark of death looms over us in our trauma, in dealing with our past abuse. The dark of death looms over us in our pain, meaning every bit of society's decay is wrapped up in the decay of death itself. Someone who did as much good, even as Mother Teresa, knew the darkness of her own soul. Mother Teresa wrote, wrote to a friend once, and she said, she wrote, darkness is, is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. Listen to this. She said, this is Mother Teresa writing, the place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long and long for God. And then it is that I feel He does not want me. He is not there. Heaven, souls, why are these just words which mean nothing to me? The world is incredibly difficult. Death is truly the curse of sin. And there really is a dark to death. Look, death is all around us. I mean, everybody in this room will one day die. And everybody in this room knows people who have one day lived and are now dead. Yet death is always strange. I'm sort of quoting J.I. Packer here. But death is always strange, 
meaning it, it, it never becomes normal. If anything, should feel pretty regular. If anything, should feel normal in this world. It's not when somebody gets a job, because there's a lot of people that don't work a job. It's not when somebody has a great uh, uh, meal, because a lot of people in this world don't get a great meal. If anything should kind of feel normal and routine and regular, it is death itself. It is the one thing that all of us as humans have shared with everybody that's ever lived and with everybody that currently lives and with everybody that will one day live. Yet death always feels strange. When somebody dies, what do we say? We say, I can't believe it. I can't, I can't believe they're gone. I can't believe they're gone. I, I see this all the time when, you know, with, with, even in Baltimore City with over 250 homicides this, this year in Baltimore City, every time somebody dies and I'll be looking on social media or talking to my friends who knows the person and the refrain I always hear is, not you, I can't believe it. I can't believe you're gone. This one's going to hurt. Meaning, no matter how common death is, it is impossible to normalize it. Well, why is that? Church, it's because we were not created to die. And so death is very strange. No, we were created as, by God to reflect His image and to live eternal lives before God. We were created to never die. But sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So, so death is the curse of sin. Meaning when somebody dies, it is the greatest reminder that sin is in the world and that even our bodies are under the curse of sin. And so we can never get used to it. We can never get to the point where it doesn't feel strange. It's the most normal thing that we will all experience and it is the most haunting reality of life. Romans 6.23 tells us that the payment for sin is death. So we've got to talk about death this morning. Before we get to this, this scene here with Eutychus, um, I want to kind of catch you up. We're, we're in Revelation 20. We're going through Paul's missionary journeys. All right? There was just a riot in Ephesus. And in, in uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased. That's a reference back to the Eph uh, Ephesus riot. And then we see a, a travel narrative here, just a quick overview of Paul's traveling. In verse, uh, verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through this region and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Now, Luke is moving really fast as he does in Acts, but there's a lot going on there. And this is actually a lot of ex excitement and intrigue uh, uh, captured in those couple verses. 
We know from 2 Corinthians that Paul was carrying with him a load of cash. He had been taking up an offering to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And we see by the end of the, the, the text here that Paul's trying to hurry to Jerusalem as quick as possible to get there by Pentecost because he wants to deliver this, this load of cash to these struggling Jerusalem Christians and to this, to this uh, struggling church. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on. and As a matter of fact, scholars believe that that offering, that cash, is not even mentioned in Acts because it was likely illegal that they were taking up an offering for the church. And so they're kind of smuggling this money through. So they don't even mention it in Acts so as not to get in trouble when this, book, when this letter is released, when this book is released. And so Paul then uh, finds out in these first couple verses that there's a plot against his life. And we're going to look more uh, in, in two weeks from now at the plot against Paul's life and Paul's willingness to even die for Christ, all right? There's a plot against Paul's life, and it's discovered. Now, it's discovered that they're going to attack him uh, at the shore as he's leaving out of Greece uh, what a great place to ambush Paul right there defenseless on the water. And so Paul kind of dips out and discovers that he's about to be attacked. So he heads up north from Greece back up to Macedonia. And then he, instead of taking a, a boat from Greece to Troas, he takes a boat from Philippi to Troas. Eventually he meets up with his friends in Troas. Now Troas is where our scene for today takes place, and we're going to get into that a little bit more so. But before I do, I also want to point out that in verses 13 through 16, we see more travel narrative. He's traveling again. So verses uh, 16, 13 through 16, I'll just briefly go over it. It says that they leave Troas and they go to Assos and then they leave uh, to go to Mytilene and then they leave from there to Chios and then they touch at Samos and then they go to Miletus and he uh, uh, avoids going to Ephesus because he doesn't have time because he's trying to get to Jerusalem and uh, and ends up uh, meeting up with some Ephesian elders in another place which we'll look at next week. But, but here, here's, here's the point I'm going for here. Uh, before and after this scene in Asus, or I'm sorry, in Troas, before and after this scene, with Eutychus being raised from the dead, we see travel narrative. If I could outline the text for you, I would outline it like this. Verses 1 through 6, travel. Verses 7 through 12, one night in Troas. And then verses 13 through 16 is more travel. So the question I'm asking of the text is, why is this narrative sandwiched between two travelogues? Well, let's get into the narrative a little bit. So in verse, in verse 7 it says, on the first day of the week. What day of, of, of the week is the first day? Sunday, yeah. Look, it was the Christians' practice to gather on Sundays. And we see this uh, throughout uh, the, the evidence uh, in the early church, and we see it right here in Acts chapter 20, that the church meets on Sundays to worship the risen Savior. That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's when churches got together for, uh, for gatherings. And so it's important to note that Paul arrived for church, all right, which I think is actually good. This is not my, my sermon, but when you guys are traveling, show up for church wherever you go. All right, that's what Paul did. He didn't see his travel days as a day off from church. 
but he gathered with the saints who were, ever, uh, who, who, who were there uh, for the worship of Jesus. So on the first day of the week, he goes to church. They gather together. They're, they're breaking bread. They're, they're eating together. This is some sort of evening service. And Paul's got the mic the whole time. Now by this time, you know, everybody knows who Paul is. And so he's bringing this, this, this incredible word, and so they, they just want to listen to what he has to say. So he's, he's sitting there uh, for hours just teaching the word of God. Now, you think our services go long. You know, you get a little antsy sometimes. <laughs> go to Pentecostal church or go to Paul's church. Here we go. Um, three times in this text, we're told that Paul was long-winded. In verse 7, it says that he prolonged his speech. In verse 9, it says still longer, meaning he's still going. In verse 11, it says, and he talked for a long while. It's midnight, and he's still going. Now, again, this is not the point of my sermon, but I just feel like i got to touch on this a little bit. We live in a microwave culture where we want everything quick, right? Or I could put it this way, we, want, we, we live in a Burger King culture where we want it our way, right away. You know what I'm saying? I want to come to church, I want to get my 15-minute message, my 20-minute message, I want to go to a Bible study that starts and ends on time, I don't want to be out late because I don't like to go to bed late, I don't want to miss, miss dinner or lunch, whatever it is. We don't really value the gathering as much as they did back then. I, I just got to say that. And I know, I know that I'm no Apostle Paul, all right? But we don't value the teaching of God's Word as much as they did back then. I just think we've got to admit that. In our culture today, we want to get it and go. And because we got, you guys got, even on, a, on the Lord's Day, you probably have 15 things on your to-do list today. All right, I've got, go, got to go a little different direction here. Just for a quick sec. We need to, we need to think about the Lord's Day and how much we plan to do in that day outside of the gathering of God's people. If you've if you got anything going on that's going to distract you from any gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day, you've got to rethink your, your priorities. I just saw somebody said the other day, they said church ought to be our excuse for missing everything else. As opposed to the other way around. All right, so this thing is supposed to be a guilt trip. I just needed to say a couple things there, all right? So uh, they're gathering, and it's midnight, and Paul is still preaching. In verse 8, we're told that there are many lamps in the place. That might be uh, just simply telling us how it's possible that they're going so late into the night because there's a lot of lamps, and Paul's able to continue uh, teaching and preaching from the Word of God. It, it might also mean, some scholars uh, think that it, it could mean that the gases from the lamps is exactly what causes the boy to fall asleep. It could be that the, the air quality is compromised, or, or maybe it's, it's the flickering lights that, that causes that kind of drowsy, sleepy, calm atmosphere, which causes the boy to fall asleep. We don't know exactly, but there's a lot of lamps and a boy falls asleep. We're told that he's a young man. Young man would mean that he's somewhere between the age of 9 and 14. So this would put him around my son Haddon's age, perhaps. It could be Haddon sitting there, or 
uh, Ashton or, or Kearney, someone right around their age, sitting in the window of a third floor room where Paul's teaching, the lamps are burning, everybody's engaged, everybody's listening. And verse 9 says that this boy, his name is Eutychus, sank into a deep sleep. And then he fell from the third floor window to his death. Everything changes in an instant. This whole scene is one at first of warmth and love and food and comfort and in a moment it turns into a scene of horror. Life changes in an instant. I think of my friend who died at age 12 when I was a boy. His name was Todd. And though I wasn't there that day, I've played the scene a hundred, maybe a thousand times over in my mind. I know he came down from stairs around 9 a.m. after making his bed, dressed himself, came down, told his mother that he was going to go pick some raspberries or blackberries, and, and he left the house. And that was the last time she would ever see him alive. A beautiful sunny day, a warm August morning. It was uh, August the 3rd. All of a sudden, in a moment, turned into the darkest day of his mother's life. Death changes everything in just an instant. This intimate gathering of this church in Troas, in just a moment, turns from an intimate, beautiful, warm gathering to a heart-sickening tragedy. In verse 9, we're simply told that he was taken up dead. In my mind's eye, I see the crowd rushing down the, the three flights of stairs. A, a circle forms around the boy. His mother's coming down shouting and screaming. His aunt grabs his mother, perhaps, and pulls her away and says, you don't want to see this. She breaks through the crowd and she sees Dr. Luke, perhaps, who's actually writing this, kneeling over the boy, checking his pulse, feeling his broken neck and saying he is gone. Can you hear the mother wailing? Can you see the, the friends standing, staring off in the distance in utter shock as Dr. Luke picks up his lifeless body, carries him back up the three flights of stairs into the house? A beautiful moment transformed into a night of horror. And this happens, friends, in our own lives. We want to move on and live life in peace and just forget the reality of death all around us, and then it just slaps you upside the head. And you can't ignore it anymore. You can no longer ignore the brevity of life. You can no longer ignore the decay of sin in this world as you are faced 
with the reality of death. Those trained in grief counseling will walk you through the stages of grief. They tell us that grief begins with denial. The mother shouts, no, 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 this can't be. He's not dead. This is impossible. Denial. Grief then moves from denial to isolation. I don't want to go to the funeral. I can't go to the viewing. I just want to be by myself. Grief moves from isolation to anger. Anger at yourself. Anger at the world. Anger at your friends. Angry with God. The fourth stage, according to grief counseling, is bargaining. What if I was sitting in the window with him? If only I had one more chance to sit there. If only I had one more chance, I would save his life. If only he were back. If only I had him for one more day, I would, I would never let him be in a dangerous location again. Bargaining. To try to delay the feelings of sadness and utter loss. Bargaining turns into depression. The sense of hopelessness. Numb to your feelings. Maybe you don't feel sadness anymore. You don't feel anything. Depression finally leads to the last stage of grief, and that is acceptance. Now, in that final stage of grief with acceptance, she's not fine with the fact that her son is dead. You can never be fine with that. She's never okay with the fact that her son is no longer with her. That's not what acceptance means. In our grief counseling, acceptance basically means that we accept the fact that they are not coming back. We accept the fact that they are dead. At no point in these stages of grief does the dark of death ever leave. As a matter of fact, the stages of grief, it, grief is learning to deal with death's finality. The stages of grief is learning to compromise with death's definitive end. The stages of grief is learning to compromise with the irreversible conclusion of this person's life. The dark of death remains. You know, deep down as we attend funerals, we, we know that a lot of these funeral taglines don't help. You, someone shouts out, you know, he's, he's, he's with us in spirit. And someone else thinks, no, he's not. He's not present. He's not here anymore. He's gone would be more true to say but it's just not appropriate for the moment. And then we go on and we try not to talk about death. You know, death is one of those things that we don't talk about in polite society. They say don't talk about religion. They say don't talk about politics in polite society. But we also don't talk about death. 
It's too real. It's too final. It seems as if death has the final word on all of life. Now, in the Bible, there are nine instances where a resurrection miracle occurs, where death is reversed and somebody who's dead is brought back to life. In the Old Testament, there are two. In First and Second Kings, we see Elijah perform a resurrection miracle, and then we see Elisha perform a resurrection miracle. There are three resurrection miracles performed in Jesus' ministry. The widow of Nain's son, or the widow of Nain's son, is raised in uh, Luke chapter seven. Jairus' daughter is raised in Luke chapter eight. And then Lazarus is raised by Jesus in John chapter 11. In the book of Acts, there are two resurrection miracles. Peter raises a young woman named Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. And here in Acts chapter 20, Paul raises this man named Eutychus. So here as the story goes, Eutychus falls out of the window, they find him dead, Dr. Luke confirms that he's dead, he picks him up, he's carried back up, taken up dead to the third floor, and then the very next words tell us that the Apostle Paul bends over the boy. It reminds us of Elijah, and, uh, uh, Elisha, doesn't it? He bends over the boy, he grabs a hold of his arms, and Paul must feel his arms beginning to spring to life, his muscles beginning to twitch, and his eyes begin to flutter. And Paul then exclaims, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now again, I ask, why is this narrative tucked between two travel logs? Luke is a good writer. What's he doing here? And why does he draw this out? What's the point? Well, you know, we could, we could uh, come up with all kinds of points, and I'm sure preachers have. Maybe we could make the point that you don't want to fall asleep in church. <laughs> Something that some of you might need to be working on this very moment. Maybe we can make the point that preachers should not preach so long to cause somebody to die. There's a wonderful book. It's actually one of my favorite books on preaching called uh, Saving Eutychus by Gary Miller. Really great book on preaching, completely missing the point of saving Eutychus, or the story of Eutychus. But uh, he goes on to basically say, hey, let's not, uh, let's not preach so long that uh, boys fall asleep and fall out of third floor windows. You know, there's some lessons that we could learn from this perhaps. I'm going to ignore that one myself. But why, why is this narrative tucked between two travel logs? In other words, before I even get to this, what does this story even mean for you? Like someone might say, how... How does a boy named Eutychus being raised 2,000 years ago help me when I 
have friends and family members that have died, when I'm facing the reality of death myself, when I'm living in a world where we're not seeing Eutychus' raised from the dead, how does this help me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Two reasons. Number one, God has the power over death. This is the first lesson it shows us. And the second lesson is this. Paul's ministry as an apostle is confirmed. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter that Paul's ministry as an apostle is confirmed? Well, Paul is traveling from place to place to place in the first section. We see the little scene, and then we see him again traveling from place to place to place. As Paul is traveling, what's he doing? He's encouraging the saints with a message. Paul is an apostle. An apostle has been given a direct message from God, and he's taking that message to the church. And so here what we see is in the middle of these two travelogues is a massive sign that confirms that Paul's message is accurate and truly from God. Are you tracking with me? Oh, why does it matter? Well, it was Paul that taught that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that message is confirmed. It was Paul that taught, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that message is confirmed as he raises his young boy from the dead. It was Paul that taught that God's wrath is on us because of our sin and Jesus took the curse for our sin. Uh, He took the guilt and the wrath of God in his own body on the tree Through the death of one man, then we are all forgiven of our sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and have the hope that all who trust in him are saved, are safe with God. How do we know that Paul's message of life is correct? Well, here's how. The signs were given to us to show us that Paul was legit. Are you tracking with me? Meaning the resurrection of Eutychus is really not about Eutychus. And it's not just about his mother. The resurrection of Eutychus is about a a, 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 a hope, a message of of life for all of us. Now, remember I told you that there are nine instances in the Bible where we see a miracle of death to life. I don't know if you were counting earlier, but I only gave you seven. There's two more. The eighth one is this. After Jesus died, he was placed into a tomb. And a stone was rolled into the entryway of that tomb. Now, there was no day in all of human history in which the dark of death sung a more powerful note than the day that Jesus was in the grave. The Messiah of God, dead and in the grave. The hope of this world laying in the tomb. Are you with me? But as the old hymn goes, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And so then we shall crown him the Lord of life 
who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high and who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Here it is, church, and I'm done. The, con- the, the confirmed Apostle Paul wrote, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He continued and he said, The sting of death is sin. And the power of, of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation, if we turn toward the end, tells us this. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the ninth and final resurrection miracle in the Bible is this. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive will be caught up together with Him in the clouds and will be forever with the Lord. Church, if I, if I came to you and I, and I said, I said, hey, Kwame is the Savior. You would say, what are you, you have lost your mind. How is Kwame the Savior of our church? And, and, and then I go and, and I raise a dead person from the, from the dead. All right, you're tracking with me. I, I, I take a man who is dead as a doorknob, bring him back to life, and then I say, Kwame is our Savior. Well, you might take my message a little differently that time, right? Well, I'm not here to tell you that Kwame is our Savior. (laughs) Jesus Christ is our Savior. And only Christ rose from the dead in the way that Christ did. And only the apostles of Christ can come along and have the power over death in these signs to confirm the fact that the message that Christ is the Savior is in fact a true message. He was raised from the dead. And so the question I have for you is this, is are you in Christ? Are you in Him? Is His life in you? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus? Do you have this hope of Christ living in you? And if you do, saints, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because all who trust in Him will one day be raised to new life. All who trust in Christ are now, listen, spiritually raised. Meaning you have already received a spiritual resurrection. You have died with Christ and you are spiritually raised to new life. Meaning you are no longer under the chains and the bondage and the guilt of sin. But all who are in Christ also have the hope that one day you will be physically raised with Christ. And you say, well, why must we physically die? 
It's because you're spiritually raised right now, not physically. Your body remains under the curse of sin, though your soul is freed from it. Are you with me? And this is not to create some kind of dualistic body versus soul uh, uh, picture of life. The reality is, is that you need your body. You want your body. Your body is good. And God is not going to let us be disembodied souls forever. But one day, for all who are in Christ, there will be an actual resurrection of our bodies in which the, the God will take somehow, I don't know how He's going to do it, but w- the stuff that we were made of and bring us back together in a way that is more glorious than you can ever imagine. Therefore, we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord for the fact that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We praise the Lord for the fact that we are raised to the newness of life. We praise for the, the Lord for the fact that there is now no fear in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The writer H.G. Wells, during the dark days of the Blitz in London, this is during World War II, was found by another writer, Elizabeth Bowen, outside shaking. He was shaking with fear. And he confessed to her in the middle of the night. He said, it's not the bombs. It's the dark. I've been afraid of darkness all my life. Church, because Christ has conquered the dark of death, you don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore. As MLK said, darkness does not drive out darkness. Only love, only light can do that. How many of you are glad that the light came into the world? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. We have the light. Even as we walk, guys, through our darkness. Even as we walk through the darkest days of death that circle around us and seek to choke us out, we have the light. And the light is life. So church, yes, there there is a darkness to death. But that darkness need not overwhelm us. In Christ, the darkness has been conquered. And so we whistle in the dark. Have you ever heard that phrase? It means to not allow the worst things in the world to drive you to despair. To have hope during even the worst times in the world. In the year 1690, a guy named John Dryden wrote a play called Amphitryon. And one of his characters coins this phrase and he says, I went whistling in the dark to keep myself from being afraid. As one writer put it, he says, I think of faith as a kind of whistling in the dark because in much the same way, it gives us courage and to hold the shadows at bay. 
In the face of darkness, we whistle. In the face of darkness, we sing, church, because Christ has defeated the darkness of death. So thank God for the resurrection. Thank God for the hope that we have as Eutychus family received this boy back and and went out of the place with not just a little bit of comfort. How much more so do we walk out of this place with immense comfort as we look at death in the face and say, Christ has defeated you. Oh, that gives us much joy. That brings us comfort beyond all measure. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that death has been defeated by the death of Jesus Christ. God, we thank You for the hope of the resurrection that we have so that we might not fall into the despair of the darkness of this world, the dark of death, but that we might be able to look at death and say, I have no fear of You. Christ has conquered You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.